right, take your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. All right, so a little bit of background information on this chapter. Uh, we know that at Corinth there was a lot of problems with carnality. We know there was divisions in the church, issues with lawsuits, etc. Well, I want you to understand a little bit about the culture that they lived in because of the backdrop of what was going on in their culture, you can see why it was such an issue for them during this time. But in Corinth, as in other places in that time of the world, in that place of the world, there was false gods everywhere. I mean, temples everywhere. And I don't just mean that, you know, there was, like, pagan churches where people went there on Sundays and, you know, occasionally they worshipped these false gods. These false gods, it, they made up their, like, everyday life. If you had a, uh, a wedding or uh, you wanted to go to a party or some kind of gathering, you'd probably go into one of the temples of the false gods. From birth, you, everything you were taught, your life, what would bring you blessings, what would bring you cursings, what brought you fear, what brought you joy, all surrounded these false gods. It was just part of everyday life. Well, an issue rose about in this church, and I, I want you to think about it in today's context, because a lot of times, again, we read scripture, and we only think about scripture of, well, you know, how it looked back then, but what, what, would, what would that look like today? How would we feel about it if it existed today? And in some ways it does, but imagine there was a large pagan temple in Davenport, Iowa. I do think there might actually be a couple, like, small ones. I think I drove by one. It looks like a little house with a Buddha statue. Um, for the most part, though, I don't know that we have any massive ones, but let's say there was this massive pagan temple in Davenport, and they had feasts there. All kinds of debauchery was going on. Like, everything your mind doesn't want to imagine was taking place in these temples. And some people would get saved out of that. Now, you go to the farmer's market, though, right? And there's a stand. And there's leftover food from some of their parties. And there's no really ambiguity about it. You go there and it says, you know, temple leftovers. How many of you would struggle with that if you saw a Christian, another person here at Crosspoint, who's a believer, buying food off of one of these stands? You'd hear a lot of the same arguments you hear today about other things. Well, what is that money going to supporting when you, when you buy this meat? Or, uh, this is associated with idols, and by doing this, aren't you lifting up, aren't you lifting up these false gods? And, and like, uh, let me be honest, I would be hesitant to go up to one today, being honest. If I saw that, I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> That's just, that seems kind of sketchy. This is what was going on, right? There were temples everywhere. They would have these sacrifices, and there was leftovers. And they would be sold at the meat markets. And so the mature believers would go, and then they would buy food from these, from these stands. And then the less mature believers, what is referenced to as the weaker brothers, they struggled with this. They just got saved from that. And now they see a stronger brother or another Christian purchasing food from the temple of the God they just denounced. It caused conflict. It, it caused some complications. And look, there's a lot of areas in this life that are known as classically as adiaphora. That means things that are indifferent. 
things that we have a hard time putting under the categories of are they virtue or are they vice? Because the truth is, is the scripture is black and white about a lot of things, but the Bible doesn't talk about every area or every possible scenario in life. Now, if it did, we wouldn't have a book this small. We would have books this small that fill the Empire State Building. That probably still wouldn't be big enough. There's just a lot of things the Bible doesn't talk about. And so this is kind of where we find ourselves. It's in more of a gray area. And so what we see, what was going back on in Corinth back then, is something that we face today at every time and in every culture. The passage is touching on Christian liberty and Christian responsibility. So let's go ahead and uh, get into the passage, starting in verse number one. Now as touching things offered into idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice to idols, we know that eating of those things— oh, yeah, they're sacrificed idols. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many. But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it, as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at the table in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against their brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. God, I pray you uh, be with us this morning. God, I pray your spirit's power would be evident. I pray our hearts would be open, that we would be humble enough to receive the things that are for us. God, that we would surrender them to you. God, give me clarity of speech, Lord, and I pray you open the minds of those who are listening. Me and my pray. Amen. So, first he's talking primarily to the stronger brothers. So we know what the issue is. We know what their culture is, and we know what the struggle is. So he tells the stronger brother that they have knowledge, but they have knowledge that's without love. So it says, now as touching things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifieth. In other words, knowledge makes arrogant, but love builds up. So, because they had knowledge without love, it made them arrogant. And I believe it's about five times in the book of 1 Corinthians, this idea of being puffed up or being made arrogant, to really, the idea of puffed up, it's like blowing yourself up, making yourself feel big, making yourself proud. And they had this with the divisions that they had, that we talked about in the first few chapters. Arrogance in their divisions. They had arrogance with the lawsuits. They had arrogance with dealing with sin in the church. And now he tells them that they have arrogance in how they actually practice Christian liberty. One of the people I like to study is uh, Charles Spurgeon. And the guy, he was a scholar, but one of the things I came to, to learn about him is while he had a lot of knowledge, one of the things he would say is he hated high churches. Now, I know what he means by that. How many of you have ever walked into a church, you walk in, 
It's cold. I don't mean the temperature. <laughs> I mean the attitude. You walk in, and it's cold. You get there. You sit down. I, ha- I hesitate to call him a pastor, but the reverend starts speaking. And he's speaking over the head of the congregation. 95% of the people don't know what he's saying. You walk out. Practically speaking, you got nothing out of it. Uh, you didn't feel loved. You didn't feel built up. It's honestly the experience didn't matter other than maybe for the ego of the person speaking. They probably felt good. Oh, I could speak all these things that most people can't even understand. Then why speak them if you can't communicate it? So Spurgeon hated that because it was knowledge without passion. It was knowledge without love. So he brings up the idea that charity edifieth. The thing that's more important is the love that builds up. Uh, we're, I'm not getting into this a whole lot today because this isn't my chapter, but someone will. I'm not sure who it is. 1 Corinthians 13 says, And if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but you don't have love, it's still nothing. It, it doesn't matter. And so he's trying to show them that, that by having this knowledge without having love, that they're using this Christian liberty and they're using this knowledge in a way that will destroy the weaker brother. I think of a situation I went through when I was at work. Let's just be honest. As we grow in Christ, we all have areas that we're still weak in. That's known as the doctrine of sanctification as we grow and become more and more like Jesus Christ. So none of us have arrived in any area, and in some areas, we're weaker than others. Which means there's certain areas in my life where I know I'm probably weaker than you are. You might have, you probably have some strengths that I don't have, and vice versa. So, I got invited by my coworkers to do something and something I really shouldn't be involved in. And I told them, hey, I can't do it. It wouldn't be a good idea. So, what I expected to happen was, oh, hey, we understand. What I got was mocking. I got mocked in front of my unbelieving coworkers who weren't Christians because of something I knew spiritually I probably can't handle. That's the wrong thing to do. You have Christian liberty, but don't be so cavalier about it that it would actually hurt somebody. And I've actually personally seen it where it actually had destroyed someone's life. I think I told this story before, but I knew a guy who suffered from substance abuse. The guy was an alcoholic, and he had been in and out of AA all the time. Another person came up who was a believer, and then he was telling this guy that we were trying to suppress his Christian liberty because we told him it wouldn't be a good idea to drink. Well, no doubt. He was an alcoholic. I mean, what else would we tell him? Yeah, go for it, man. Drink up. That's stupid. So what happened? If you listen to either guy, what happened to his life? Back in AA, separated from his wife. All because someone wanted to have this argument over Christian liberty. Christian liberty, if it's not paired with love, it's not seeking the best of other people, can actually tear people down. It can destroy their lives. So we have to have discernment in how we use it. But Paul isn't like pitting knowledge against love because you have to have both. I mean, it doesn't make sense to love people but not have, not have knowledge because how do we discern what we're to love if we don't have knowledge? And I know this for a fact because he gets in there and he tells them, and if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. He's basically telling them, you haven't arrived. The things you do know are things you should know. And furthermore, in Colossians 1.10, he tells them that he desires that they would grow in the knowledge of God. 2 Peter 2.13. Peter, a different author, states that he wishes that they would grow in the grace, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
we do want to grow in knowledge and we do want to mature in our thinking, but we want it to be with love. And you know what's actually ironic about this is those who thought they had all this knowledge and were boasting about it forgot the very basics of Christian principles, the things that Jesus taught us. In fact, even the Jewish law taught, known as the Shema, they asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He tells them, and Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. It's good to have knowledge. But why do you have it? I know a lot of people who seek out knowledge just for the sake of knowledge. When it should be, I desire to have knowledge because I want to know my Savior more. I desire to have knowledge because I don't just want to have it to know it to be arrogant. I should have it so I can help God use me to build other people's lives up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But is that your life? Is that your motive? Do you use Christian liberty in a way that's cavalier, that tears people down? Or with the knowledge you do have that you know the Bible doesn't condemn and you feel the freedom to do it, do you use it in a way that's cavalier and without concern, without love? where you build yourself up, but not others. I love Galatians 4.9. But now, after that you have known God, or rather, known by God. It's going to reference the next portion we get into. Because he says, regarding knowing things, what's more important is that God knows us. Verse number three says, but if any man love God, the same is known of him. Uh, prepositions in Greek can be funny. Uh, if you just read that sentence, at face value. It would kind of appear that, okay, if any man knows God, then it's people know generally from the outside that you love God. That's actually not what it's saying. The uh, word of there in the Greek is hupo, which is a preposition by. And that word him, autu, is actually referring to God. So a better understanding of it would be, but if any man love God, the same is known by God. This makes sense. What is the fruit of a true believer? What does First John tell us? That we love God, we love others, and we walk in light. So he's saying, you're worried about, and you're boasting with this knowledge you have, and you're so passionate about, oh yes, I, you know, we, we've got knowledge, Paul. We know, these idols, we know these idols aren't real. It's not our fault the weaker brothers don't. And he's saying, well, of the knowledge that you should be concerned about is, does God know you? I can't say for sure. There's many possible applications for this, or a couple that I can think of. One might be a warning. Does God know you? Do you have love for others? Is that something that is evident in your life? Because those who are known by God are those who love God. What's interesting is this next part is, while their disposition towards unbelievers was wrong, Paul doesn't state that their belief about these gods was incorrect. He actually affirms it because it was knowledge, and it was used inappropriately, but it was still knowledge. He states that other gods do not exist, and starting in verse number four says, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other god but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and there be gods many, and lords many. So, Paul's making it clear. So there's this controversy, and Paul says, yeah, you're right. There is only one God. 
And the Bible's very clear about that because it talks about how the idols are the making of men's hands. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, they don't see. They're dumb. They have mouths, they can't actually speak. We know that it's just stones. We know that it's just wood. So the mature believers have this understanding, and Paul's affirming that. You're absolutely correct. We know that there's only one God in the world. This is true. Then it kind of gets into a cool bit of theology here. And verse number six says, but to, us there is but, only, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. This is talking about the Godhead. It doesn't mention the Spirit, but it's referring to God the Father and God the Son. Again, with those kind of tricky prepositions we can read, maybe a better way to understand these verses would be, For the Father, for we are from him, and we are for him. And for the Son, and we are by him, and through him. You think about it this way. We know... God created everything, right? He created everything, and it's created for him. And yet he used Jesus, who is also God, as the means for that creation. And yet, it's, Colossians 1 also states that the things that were created were for the Son. I can read in verse, uh, Psalm, I'll go ahead and do it, is uh, Psalm 104, 24 says, O Lord, how, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. It's talking about Yahweh. God. And so some people, Unitarians or Jehovah Witnesses and some other people who only believe that there isn't a trinity and that it's only God the Father, they would run into some complications here. Because Yahweh created the world. The Son created the world. The world is for the Father, and yet we see the world is for the Son. So do we have a conflict here? Are we talking about two different gods? No, if you believe in the trinity, it's perfect. We're talking about two persons who are part of the same being. One God, made up of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so he affirms this. We get this cool bit of theology, but I, I was thinking about why. Why did he say this? And um, a quick story before I make this so you understand the joke. Um, when I was dating my wife a long time ago, and I feel old, my beard's getting gray, and it was a long time ago, um, there was these family, there's the assistant pastor of the church she was from, and they're missionaries now, great family. When their kids were little, they couldn't say my last name. And so they wouldn't call me Hoffel, they would call me Brother Awful. <laughs> sounds the same, I get it. So going forth from that point forward, whenever I'm talking about something that might be awful, I'll just say this is really Hoffel. And so I'm about to give you something that might be some Hoffel theology. Maybe, I don't know, I'm acknowledging and putting out here, this is pure speculation but I think there's some merit to it. I had wondered why, like, why would Paul write to the believers and reaffirm what they already know? I mean, were they going to be like, oh, yeah, thanks, Paul, we know that. But then I was thinking about, like, the context of where they lived and how things were done. Well, in the early church, when Paul would write a letter, it would go to the church, and it was public practice to read the letters to the church. So who was there? The mature believers and the immature believers. They would both hear this every part of this letter. And if we were having this dispute in the church today, and the pagan temple in Davenport was real, and one of you got offended at me because I bought some meat from the pagan, you know, leftover altar place, and you're thinking, hey, that, that, that's not right, you shouldn't do that. And let's say the Apostle Paul was still alive today, and he writes a letter, and we're waiting for this debate to get settled. And in front of everybody, he tells the stronger brothers, you're not being very loving. You need to be careful with your Christian liberty. But then the weaker brothers are all excited and like, yes, yes, see, we told you. But then Paul says, 
And by the way, the stronger brother's right. Those gods aren't real. I would imagine everyone who was getting excited about this conclusion was just like, oh, it's just kind of a letdown. Everyone kind of walked away the loser in this scenario. And I think that's kind of what has, what was taking place here because sometimes when we think of the weaker brother, we think of, I don't know, we kind of put it out there in the ether and then we put it towards like an individual and we think, okay, the weaker brother is someone who's perpetually weaker. Should that be the case though? Yes, they just got saved and so they were struggling with their knowledge about who God was. So should that mean 10 years after their point of trusting Christ as their savior that they would still be as weak as they were when they first trusted Christ? Is that the goal? No. No, absolutely not. And I, I'm saying this because we're about to talk about the weaker brother, and I, I want to, one, help later to give you some principles of how do we walk through things when it is gray, and it's, it, it's not black and white. But I also want to help you avoid the, the two ditches that are often given out there. There's some people who think, well, I've got license to do whatever I want to do. I'm under grace, and because I have Christian liberty, I can do whatever I want to regardless of the consequences and who it hurts. Well, that's not biblical. But then we've got people who, on the other side, who will, they fall into the pit of legalism, and anything that I'm weak in, therefore, I must put upon your life, and I'm going to teach it from the pulpit. I'm going to teach it from a class. I'm going to tell my coworkers. I'm going to tell other Christians that you can't do this because I'm weak in this area, and so because I'm weak in this area, somehow this now becomes biblical doctrine, that the things I struggle with should be your struggles. That, that's not biblical either. And I've met pastors, and not pastors, I, I knew of a pastor, and he, he said something that kind of caught my eye once. It is like one of the things like, that just sounds kind of off. He made the comment, and he was saying it, it was kind of in a pious matter. And he's like, well, the reason I'm so ultra-separated from this world is because I realize how bad of a sinner that I am, and so I've created all these guidelines and rails for my life so I don't fall back into sin. And so and basically, this, he was saying this was a good thing. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. You've been saved for 15 to 20 years, and you're saying that your immaturity as a Christian has been in perpetuity, that you've never grown in any of these areas. And so you must always have these, these rails and these, and these guidelines in your life, and, and then you're also preaching it to others that they should do the same. That's not biblical. And some people will use the weaker brother as an excuse to push whatever they want to teach, and you'll catch this sometimes. Someone will Say, you should do this, and you approach them, well, why should I do this? And they'll be like, um, okay, uh, so this verse might imply it, I'm not sure. And then it's kind of, um, weaker brother, that's why. Weaker brother, and then all of a sudden the weaker brother becomes the past for me to tell you all kinds of things you can't do anymore. Weaker brother. I don't have any other answer, but weaker brother. That's not what this passage is for either. We have to keep it in context and keep it in mind as where they lived at and how this is applied to her life today. I like how Martin Luther put it in regards to our growth, though. It says, we do not reach spiritual maturity until we are able to reenter the world and embrace it. Not as we once did in all its worldliness, but as the arena of redemption. It is our place of labor. It is a place God made into which Christ came. We do not give up on the world and all of its fallenness. It is still our Father's world. We must learn to claim it for himself. But by conformity, not by conformity, but by witnessing to it and transforming it. This can be accomplished without fear if we come to the world with minds that are renewed. I, I love that because what is healthy is when you first become a Christian, you do have a lot of propensity of things you might fall back into. 
So what I, what I expect naturally for people who become true believers is that they would jump to the other end of the spectrum. Why? Because they're immature in their faith. They might easily fall. And so they're going to set up all kinds of guidelines within their life. But do we stay there? Can we say this is something we should always have and there's never growth? Look, there's places you might not go to anymore after you initially became saved. There's friends you might not hang out with initially when you first become a Christian because you know how they pulled upon your life. But as your mind is transformed and you become more like Christ and that maturity develops in you, one in knowledge, but also in practice, you can go back to some of those things, not the way you did before, but with a new mind. Some of those friends you weren't hanging out with initially after you became a believer, maybe now you can because you have an easier time saying no. And you can now use these opportunities for gospel situations. Maybe there's places you wouldn't go to because, well, if I went there, there were some things that used to, when I was there, it pulled me in and make me want to do these things. But after you've been saved for five or six years, you've matured. Those things don't have a pull on your life. Is it wrong to go back there again if, if it's no longer affecting you? No. There might be some things in your life that never change. Again, we're a work in progress. There are some things in your life we might struggle with our entire lives, and so there might be some things we have to keep there. But should our life always be the same? Should we always be weak the same way in every area for the rest of our life? No. So we can't think of the weaker brother and just let them off the hook. Well, the weaker brother's the weaker brother, and so I expect them to always stay that way. We can't expect that of someone else because that's not healthy Christianity. We can't expect that of ourselves. We're expected to grow. And so now, to talk about the weaker brother. It says that not everyone has the same knowledge. Verse number seven, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with their conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. When they got saved from paganism, it doesn't necessarily mean that they stopped believing and all the superstition that came with it. They now believed in the right God. Remember, the early Christian creed when someone got saved is essentially standing up and declaring, Jesus Christ is my Lord. That's what it was. You put your faith in Christ. He is my Lord. He is my God. That doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't have an inclination of thinking, maybe these guys are real still. That can happen. In fact, that's exactly what is stated, that some people to that very, at that very time, when you ate something that was offered into an idol, they really took it as something that was offered to an idol. Uh, we were talking to a, uh, a missionary a few weeks ago, went across the street and uh, sitting down eating, and uh, they had mentioned that in the country they were at, they grew up in a place that was very pagan, and they believed in a lot of superstition and spirituality. And so if you've grown up this way, and your entire life from childhood, all you've been taught is of these other gods, and that by believing these other gods and performing certain rituals that your life will be blessed and will be protected, by, and by not doing these things, your life could be cursed, and you might be allowing evil spirits in, you might say, well, that, that sounds foolish. Well, it's not foolish if you grew up that way. That becomes your reality. You now believe in the right God. I guarantee you there's probably still some fears in the back of your mind. Now that I've done this, what might happen to me? And so you've stepped over the line from paganism. You're in Jesus Christ, but the line is just right there. The ability for you to fall back into paganism at that point, because you are immature, or to stumble is relatively high. So what do I not want to do then as the more mature believer? Hey, 
I got some pagan meat. This is altar tune idol. Do you want to eat it? No. Because your conscience is still weak. Because you are immature. Sometimes we can take our liberty and we can be very cavalier about it. Like, well, I don't struggle with it. Well, this person might have just come out of a sin. And by you pushing this particular liberty on them, because you don't fall into that sin, doesn't mean that they won't. In fact, that they pro- the fact is they probably will. It's charitable to leave it alone. Allow them to be separated in that area in their life. Don't mock them. I like how Romans 14 puts it, that the weaker brother isn't to judge the more mature, and the more mature isn't to despise the weaker brother. We have to live in harmony. I also, the first verse, I believe, says not to argue about things, and it uses the word doubtful disputations. In other words, don't talk about frivolous things. Don't argue about frivolous things. If this is something that someone's struggling with, don't argue about it. Let it go. Be more mature. Later on in Romans 14, it talks about having that faith to yourself between you and God. But he also says they're missing the point. Like, eating this meat in regards to your spiritual condition and their spiritual condition, did it make them more of a super-Christian? Did it make them less of a Christian? In other words, did your justification and your acceptance with God, and even thinking about things of eternal value, was it wrapped up in this meat by itself? No. It, Paul gets it, and he, he declares that. He says, But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. When you abuse Christian liberty at the cost of someone else because you want to win the argument, you're, you're dying on the wrong hill. You're missing the point. Remember that the knowledge can make you arrogant, but it's love that builds up. And so what I'm trying to say is if we're looking at things that are of true value, true value, eternal value, I'm not going to be arguing over frivolous things like this. I'm not going to be arguing over, over pieces of Christian liberty in my life that I feel that because you don't practice what I practice, that therefore I need to make a point and make sure that you agree with me and then you practice it too. Regardless, and I'm going to do it, in fact, I'm going, to, I'm going to openly do it in front of you regardless of your struggle because, you know, this is my liberty, even if it causes the weaker brother to stumble and even if it destroys their life. Hey, it's my liberty. It's not the attitude to have. And Paul's saying you're missing the point. You're concerned about things that are of no eternal value. And so you're arguing the point. And FYI, you're right. There are no other gods. But the big picture here, what is the big picture? Do you have love for other people? Do you exercise your liberty with a mindset that's filtered through love? Hey, I can do this, but should I? Should I practice this if I know it's going to hurt somebody else? He's saying you're missing the point. You're arguing over the meat. Who cares about the meat? God doesn't care about the meat. It's meat care about other Christians, care about other people. Now, he talks quite a bit about conscience. It gets used over and over again. Starting in, uh, I guess you go back to verse number nine. It says, but take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols. Now, mark that word emboldened it actually also means to build up. And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish. That word perish means destroyed. For whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and win their conscience, ye sin against Christ. They were closely associated with the old gods. And so this is where I, I want to kind of help give you some guidelines. What do we do in life every day when we run into things that aren't black and white? Now, I know there's some people say, well, the Bible has answers to everything. Well, the Bible is sufficient for what God created it for. 
It's perfectly sufficient. But does it tell us everything we need to do in life? No. There's a lot of things that change from time to time and culture to culture. It doesn't touch on at all. So how do we determine then what's right and wrong? How do we know what we can do and, and what we can't do? And this is kind of what we're getting. It, it talks about this idea of conscience. God gives us a conscience as a means of protection. Through the Spirit of God, speaking to us, telling us, pricking our hearts, letting us know, maybe this isn't for you. Or, might be the opposite, go for it. And I'm going to give you an example, kind of an illustration, and it's a, it's a stupid one, but it's something that affected me. Um, I've made it abundantly clear before in my past messages that I'm nerdy. So that means I grew up reading comic, book, comic books, playing video games, and that kind of stuff, right? Well, what comes along with that is people like that who get into those kind of things, and I did too, is uh, that also means I daydreamed all the time, and it was easy for me to get lost in fake worlds. And in my mind, you could be talking to me, and I wasn't paying attention, just like some of you might not be paying attention to now, because I'm being boring, I apologize. Um, but beyond that, it started to become a waste of time, too. And there was just something about being able to take my life and then putting it into a digital character and exploring a world of magic and dragons. But man, that's awesome. And they, I get wrapped up into it, you know, 20, 30, 40 hours a week. You're saying, was this recently? No. Uh, but sadly, it was when I was in my 20s. Uh, so early 20s, you know, this was happening, and I was wasting so much time with my life, and Holy Spirit began to speak with me. I started to notice some stuff that I needed to be more content with reality than the false reality. I needed to be more content with actually and have a desire to pursue things of eternal significance and not things that were a waste of time. And some of you are saying, are you saying playing video games is a sin? No, I'm actually not saying that. I'm saying at that time, for me, I had a propensity to get lost and lose my mind into stupid things and spend hours and hours and hours as a week to it and misplace priorities and doing all kinds of just, it was just stupid, right? So I promised God that, up, yeah, so for a year, God, I'm not going to touch it. And so, for a year, I didn't. I grew in maturity over that time. Like, do you play games now? I do. But instead of it being 40 hours a week, it's maybe two hours a week. And I always make sure my other priorities are met. Job, family, responsibilities, my time with God. That's what I mean. You can mature over time and sometimes step back into things where initially your conscience said no, but now, okay. So the what we filter through and. Romans 14 talks about this a bit more clearly. But first of all, primarily, is it found in the Word of God? If the Bible is black and white on it, then you should be black and white on it. There should be no dispute and there should be no question. We follow God everywhere he tells us to go. But if it's not clear, then what do we do? A couple principles. One, Romans 14 tells us that every man is to be persuaded in his own mind and that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And then lastly, can you do it to the glory of God? So if there's something you're not sure about, like, God, this isn't really clear for me, and you have hesitancy to, to do it, don't. If you can't honestly be fully persuaded in your mind and by faith jump into something thinking, okay, I know God's okay with this, then don't do it. God gave us the Spirit to help direct us, to help guide us when we make these decisions, uh, bring up another example, and I think it's, you know, kind of more of a goofy one, but it's something I like to occasionally, this goes against what I said, and I, I admit this isn't spiritual. Uh, some people don't believe in um, celebrating, like, Christmas, and so sometimes I'll, you know, I like to get into those debates because, well, to me, they're goofy. So, anyway, 
someone found on Google or was told that, they never knew this in their entire life, that, you know, over a thousand years ago, oh, Christmas actually came from a pagan holiday. Yeah, is it true? It is. It is. Um, some of the practices that are done in Christmas, or in Christmas are actually something that were borrowed from a pagan religion. And so some would see, after they saw that, they're like, I'm no longer going to celebrate Christmas. They're conscious, and this, this does happen. Um, I, know, I personally know people like this. Their conscious will, not, will no longer allow them to practice Christmas. Now, for me, I look at it, and I think it's awesome how God can use redemption in this world and take something that used to be a pagan holiday, and now, for the most part, unless you do some great research on it, you have no idea it's even associated with an idol. And so now when everyone used to think it was about this idol, now on the state, people only think about Jesus. And I say, praise God. I mean, that's awesome, right? So I still celebrate Christmas. And so if that's you, and this is a scenario like what you're in, your conscience tells you no, then by all means, don't do it. For me, I feel free in doing it. I, I can do it with full faith. I, I believe it brings glory to God. But what we shouldn't do, what I shouldn't do in this case, you can't mock other people whose conscience don't allow them to do that. Now, in this, case, in this situation, I, I bring it up because it is a little bit extreme. Um, just in this scenario of, generally, if we're going to make that argument, it has to be something that would make you stumble. And I don't, and my joking response to them is, so when you open presents, are you tempted to worship pagan gods? And they'll <laughs> usually say no. So <laughs> that's simple guidelines. But as Christians, we have to have love with knowledge. Understanding that if we have knowledge without love, it's worthless. But if we have love without knowledge, it's dangerous. We need to have both, and we need to make sure that when we're exercising our Christian liberty, we're doing it in a way that's mindful of other people. Because as we'll see in the very last verse we read, that to not be mindful of the weaker brother and to lead people into sin because of our own liberty, it is sin. It says, wherefore... If meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Paul is saying here at the end, right before that, he talks about how to sin against the brothers is sin against Christ. And because of this, he has this resolution out of love to only do what is going to build people up. Now, remember what I talked about earlier to mark in your mind? You probably don't, but uh, this idea of being emboldened to then go back to their idols is the same word for edifying that was used earlier. They both actually mean to build up. It, it's wordplay. He's saying that if you truly have love, then you will be with someone who is a weaker Christian, and your lifestyle and your teaching will build people up to be more like Jesus Christ. But if you don't have love, and you're taking advantage of your Christian liberty in a way that's just kind of, well, flippant, you don't care about who you offend, then you actually build that person's life up from their weak state to worship their false gods again. Our influence has more power than we think it does. And we need to be mindful of that. And I'm not saying you can't practice things on your own time. And I, I'm also not saying to use the weaker brother as, a, as an excuse not to do anything. Because some people will push this too far. And honestly, we can't live consistently that way if we're always being mindful of how we're watched. If this is what you truly believe, then you need to go into your house in a trailer in the woods somewhere. Close your windows. Get rid of your phone. Because the weaker brother might be watching you. That is not what this passage is getting at. 
But it is saying that if you know someone who is struggling with something, perhaps a perpetual sin that maybe an activity that in itself can't, isn't sinful, but could be taken in excess, might take them to areas that lead to other things, you have the freedom to do that, but don't invite them over to your house to do it at your place. That's all I'm saying. That is the principle here. If you truly love someone, don't argue over your Christian liberty with them, okay? If they're weak in this area, be loving and be understanding and do your best to build them up. Because our goal, if we're truly loving them, is to show them what the truth is. Not an argumentation, but teach them positive things. Like in this situation, they had struggled with other gods being there, but Paul, throwing this in his letter as this being read publicly, by the way, I want to emphasize there is only one God, and we know who he is. And so our idea is that we should help build people up, because as we know Jesus Christ, Jesus says that when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. So as our mind begins to mature and we understand what truth is, then now we can step back into things and we can grow and we can experience things with full faith and be okay with it when the scripture doesn't condemn it and our conscience allows it. We know it brings glory to God. It's okay. But for those who struggle with it, love them. Don't lead them into sin. And when they're not around, have at it. Do it between you and God. If you're with other strong brothers— and sisters in Christ, and you know it's not a sin, and you've got, you all have freedom to do it, it's okay to do those things, but make sure you're mindful about who you might be influencing in the context and situation you're in. Keep those things in your mind. So I'm not telling you, and I, I say this because I, want, I don't want you to walk away thinking that I'm trying to push rules that aren't biblical on your life, but I also want you to understand the freedom we have in Christ isn't freedom to still be in sin and do what we want. The freedom we have in Christ is to passionately follow and love him which means sometimes we take responsibility, and I'm not going to get into it because it's not my chapter, but the next, next chapter, chapter number nine, it, taking the freedoms we do have and sometimes sacrificing them, sometimes not exercising them because we are around someone who is weaker, and we defer to that person because that's what love would do. We don't want them to fall. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, and you don't quite understand what this liberty means of, what, what, what is Christian liberty? Well, primarily Christian liberty is being set free from sin. The Bible teaches for the wages of sin is death. In Ephesians 2, it really emphasizes the fact that we were following the course of this world. We were under the master of this world, Satan. And we were by nature children of wrath, you know, even as others. And so we were, we were enslaved to our sin before we know Jesus Christ. You can think of salvation as being saved and redeemed and pardoned from cosmic treason. Because when we sin, we sin against the king of kings. And we are now imprisoned under the king of this world. But when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ... You're leaving darkness and you're stepping into light. You're putting your faith in Jesus because he died on the cross to pay for your sins and he rose again the third day and he will set you free from your sins so you can live for him. That's what Christian liberty is ultimately about is the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you don't have liberty in Jesus Christ, you can know that today Jesus loved you and he died for you. Put your faith in him and you'll experience liberty. If you're a Christian here today and you're struggling with this idea of well, there's certain things I'm just not sure about. If you're not sure about them yet, don't step into it. Wait until you have the maturity to do it. And I'll be honest, you might not ever. Because there are some things and propensities we have in our life that sometimes can be so strong where they might get weaker and weaker over time, but we know, the Holy Spirit tells us, and our conscience won't allow it, then don't do it. At the same time, if we're Christians and we are more mature in certain areas, don't use your liberty for someone else to stumble. Don't destroy their lives because you have an arrogance about you that only is desirous of the things I can do and why I have justification to do it. Love other people. All right, let's go ahead and go learn first.